I'm Carrie Fountain, and this is Just to Say, where we talk to poets about the poems they make and the poems they love. Poetry's about anarchy, it's about mystery, it's about dreams, it's about, you know, the unknown. I made myself anew in poetry. The poem invites the world to come celebrate. This is Lisa Olstein, and this is my poem, This is Our American America, Here is Your Son. We bring the world to bed with us, its weather, its moving maps, and its wars. When the staff told the grieving chimp tomorrow they'd bring her a baby, she understood her baby, the one three years ago whisked inexplicably away, not any baby, which is what they brought. Of course she wouldn't touch it. Of course, this lasted all day and into the night, and by morning had been replaced by embrace. Kinship is a gun set to stun, circumstance a falcon striking mid-air. Tonight I know the headshot, I know the kneeling man. If you know a face, when you know a face, how you know a face, is the way every part of it works together when still a person Across a table, a person laughs on just another sunny day. One of the things that's really interesting to me about this poem is that there's no comma in the title. This is our American America. Here is your son. And I wonder, like, what is what's up with that? Yeah, that language is borrowed directly from ISIS terrorists who had uh, some American and other journalists in captivity, um, including my friend and former grad school mate, James Foley, who um, is a figure in this poem. So that's borrowing their language directly. When you know that about the poem, it takes on so much more significance. When I was reading the poem before, I kept thinking, I know what that image is, and I can't quite place it. It was I was thinking it was maybe the Abu Ghraib images that we, we, we know so well. But now that you've said that, that just it, uh, of course, that's the kneeling man, right? But of course, it's also the uh, right, grave right. Uh, torture victims, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, it it's something that I um, obviously feel strongly about and feel complicated about putting into poems and that I've given some thought to levels of identification Mm -hmm. and what does it mean to have a personal relationship with someone who has become very much and very intentionally a symbolic figure Mm -hmm. who was very publicly, you know, manipulated. But I'm glad that the description was enough to sort of maybe resonate with something in your consciousness, but also certainly it was a conscious choice I'm making a conscious choice to talk about it with you now. And at the same time, it was a conscious choice not to put in identifying features or even a dedication in this poem. That's a way of honoring the subject because it's honoring their own sense of privacy and sense of uh, agency, even posthumous agency and not becoming the object in a poem. Yeah, I, I knew Jim Foley, but we were not close or good friends. And so it was not, it was a very traumatic thing globally, I think, and and for many people in this country, whether they knew him or not, it was obviously um, an extraordinarily tragic and traumatic event for people who loved him. And I felt very much like I was somewhere between those two poles. And in that space, what struck me was, I know that body. That's a real person. So it isn't the same as a, uh, a beloved, but it is a, a real and true person 
in the way that everybody is but humanity gets so easily erased. I always really admire in your work, and it happens in this poem as well, that there's this sort of seamless quality to disparate things coming together in a way that just is really remarkable to me. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit, and we'll go back and maybe talk a little bit more about this, like, so it's sub- subject of the poem, but if you could just, like, talk a little bit about how you, how poems come together for you and how this poem specifically kind of came together. Like, what comes first? And, you know, obviously it's going to be different for every poem, but typically, what does it feel like to you, you know? I'm really interested in the way our thoughts actually move in our minds, Mm -hmm. which is quite different than the way we typically narrate Mm -hmm. them to ourselves and to others and, and the normative ways that we communicate in the world, which is necessary, right? It's for good. But I'm really interested almost in trying to slow down and observe and then in a poetic space, in a lyric space to recreate what in fact are the the uh, highly associative, very juxtapositional um, and sort of slant ways that our thoughts do roll one into the other. And it isn't exactly that they're fragmented necessarily. They're often highly connected. Um, It's just they're not connected in the linear and narrative ways that we sort of require of more normative meaning making. Mm -hmm. Um, So in this poem, and generally speaking, uh, I think I find my way into that through the ear. Um, it's It has to be the right phrasal sound. Um, so I, I delight in the sounds of individual words or letters or, or rhymes or slant rhymes, but it's it's about the sound of a phrase cohering and then finding that associative logic or that sonic logic that allows me to go to the next place, which is a continuation, but not necessarily the most expected um, continuation. Does that come naturally to you as a writer, or are you restraining yourself from trying to put what you're like that frame on it that we are so that it's sort of typical? Yeah, I, I admire and adore restraint, but I don't practice it in the way I think you're talking about. To me, that would be... Um, I think that would have an, a stifling effect. Mm-hmm. So for my process tends to be um, if there's a flow, I follow it. So I don't I don't self edit as I go along um, at all, because I think I would edit out my best thoughts mm-hmm. um, and my best momentums if I did that. Um, so if things are flowing, if I'm in a more narrative mood, if I'm in a more sort of um, direct kind of mood, or if if I'm able to follow a, a less direct path, I just try to go with it. Um, but I'm really interested in the part of the process that comes later when you've stepped out of that initial generative flow and you're looking back at the work. And for me, it's sometimes an additive process, but much more often it's a subtractive process mm-hmm. to try and... Um, to pare away the obvious or the redundant or the less energetic. Mm -hmm. Um, And that often it's sort of a process almost of um, allowing the, the, the realist energy or the most interesting um, kind of movements to emerge Mm -hmm. um, rather than to be, have them sort of be covered over by this less energetic or interesting stuff. That's really interesting, isn't it? 
I love the way that you describe it because it, as a reader, it feels, um, I mean, it does that, it does that double thing that makes some poetry just so like, oh, wonderful that it, it seems effortless. And yet in the end, you can see that there's, there's a cumulative effect. How often do you do the generative stage? Is that like a daily thing that you're doing? How many of, how much of what you begin Mm. in that stage becomes something that you would read in a book? I don't think I have a consistent answer to that. I think that um, it, that generative space has a very kind of magnetic, when it's happening, when it's working, it has a very sort of resonant and or magnetic feeling Mm -hmm. to me. And usually if that feeling is present, it's something that I can work with. Um, Sometimes that space or that energy is one that I um, can enter into, or sometimes we say receive a lot. Mm -hmm. And other times it's months between really feeling in that space. Um, And likewise, there's no one way it goes. Sometimes I'll sit down, get the initial sort of phrase feeling and write a complete poem and have and, and end up changing very little. Um, other times that sort of resonance or, or magnetism is only holding together a single phrase or a couple of sentences and I put them in a notebook and I return to them later and then find ways to stitch them into something um, beyond themselves at a later point. So it's not um, it's not consistent. Mm-hmm. As you have, I mean, this is this is your fifth. This is my fourth collection. fourth collection of poems. You've been at this a while now. Have has that changed over the time that you've been writing thus far? And have you taken any? Was there a time in your writing life when, like, you know, you you're you're saying there's sort of like a space and you're receptive to it and it it kind of comes and there can be long stretches in between. Has it? Was there a time in your writing life where you thought, "Oh no, this is—it's not going to come back. Like that's it. That's and and over time has that been more kind of like instructive to you? Like, oh yeah, we can go a couple of months and then go back to it, and it will be there. Or, I mean, how do you deal with that? Because I think someone who has kind of like inherently has. Um, what one might call control issues. <laughs> like, I feel like if I'm going to write, like I have to sit down and do it every day or like it's not just going to come come back. Like, I, you know, so I'm just interested because it seems very appealing to me, but it's also seems very foreign to me. So, yeah, I mean, it. I think every writer, most writers, let's say, experience their share of terror. Um, and I think it's B.B. King who says um, every gig is a dress rehearsal. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you you know, as an artist, I think that it's it's sort of an endless search or quest. Um, and certainly finishing a poem or even just being deep inside one that isn't finished is a unique form of satisfaction that I feel mm-hmm. um, and one that I crave when it's not around. Mm-hmm. Um, with varying degrees of desperation. Um, I think that like many poets, I fear that every, the last poem I wrote is the last poem I'll write. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, it is true that I have been 
able to somehow manage this kind of relationship or practice um, for a bunch of years now. And so I think I, I bring a little bit more confidence to the idea that um, it, it'll probably stay with me. Um, but I still experience, you know, it, the processes change, your life changes, your ability to control your time changes, um, the conditions of the world that affect the conditions of your heart and mind change. So there's, um, there's certainly anxiety. And for me, it's a balancing act between sort of the idea of um, chance favors the prepared mind, or um, there's a title in here of a poem I borrowed from uh, hearing Joy Williams talk, which is something I think it's the visitors come when you're sitting at the table. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to, per- you have to show up. Um, or else it's quite certain that it won't happen. On the other hand, just showing up doesn't mean it's necessarily going to happen. And I think some people, and I'm curious if you're one of them, for some people, they can just sort of bash on through. Um, They can maybe write poorly, or they can just be really patient and wait. I find it actually really demoralizing to, to, to write when I'm not feeling it, Um, which doesn't mean I don't try. It just means I know when to stop. And try again later. And you have been also writing in a different discipline, right? You have been, or you've been writing in a collection of essays that are lyric in nature, but are essays. It's a different discipline. I wonder if there's a difference to you in those two, like how you approach those two different practices. Yeah. That so, um, I've written sh- you know short essays from time to time over the years, but this is the first time I've I've dived into a prolonged project, and it's one long lyric essay essentially, or sort of novella length project that is some form of a creative nonfiction, um, and I was actually really surprised once I I got fully immersed in it how much overlap there was between that particular writing and the feeling and experience of writing poems. Um, It was very different to be in such a a sustained and interconnected piece of work um, that had a a sort of spatial and temporal uh, dynamic that was far more extended than an individual poem, whether that poem is 20 lines or 50 lines or, you know, so that there were definitely new Um, challenges and valences to the experience, but the feeling of being in sync with language and finding the right expression for the right thought um, and manifesting the the right movement from thought to thought um, was really remarkably similar to writing poems for me, which I found really gratifying. Um, but it's a very particular, it's kind of a poet's book of prose. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so this it wasn't me stepping out and writing a book of, you know, I don't know, s- historical fiction that follows a certain mm-hmm. highly plotted trajectory. Right. Because I, I mean, you know, like, that was not my experience in writing a novel. Like, the, the, I felt like I didn't have any of the same yeah. um, tools working in those two. And the approach was totally different. Mm-hmm. The amount of time I could spend writing my novel was like i you know i too like you know i i, I feel like writing poetry is is a is a practice it's like a spiritual practice almost mm-hmm. where you like you know sit at the table and you you wait um and that can even when something comes 
I have very rarely, I mean, maybe in college and graduate school had like, maybe have not had the luxury, but just the day long experience with a poem. Mm-hmm. But in working in the, a novel, it's like you can just get in there and you're in that world and you, time flies by and seven hours later, and, you know, that's how I hurt my back. <laughs> I wasn't paying attention to how I was sitting. Um, but uh so that's just that's that's interesting. And do you feel like it's the same kind of what you you sort of generate and then and then kind of relieving that of the two obvious or is it Yeah, I think there were definitely similarities. I think um I was inhabiting I guess uh, all of it feels related to ventriloquism on some level to me and so for me to be in a poem and proceed what I have to be hearing is the voice. Um, of that particular poem or that particular moment of relationship to language. And so I don't mean by voice like persona poems, Mm -hmm. which I don't, I suppose you could say in some cases that's uh, something I've done. But for the most part, I I just feel like there are questions of tone and um, sureness of speaker that are what I rely on, I guess, um, when I'm writing an individual poem. And so that was true for the... Um, the nonfiction book, but it was a different speaker with mm. a different way of speaking. Wow, that's um, very interesting. To there, think about that. and I was being—it's not a memoir, but it—it um, it does include a fair amount of personal anecdote and reflection mm-hmm. on experience that I've had, um, and so that was different too because there's a ton, obviously, of me. I don't believe we we separate ourselves from our work really. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that we find our true expression in many, many sort of um, dresses, costumes, guises, mm-hmm. and other voices. Whereas this, the voice I was inhabiting there was was a little bit more directly myself speaking, mm-hmm. but within a set of sort of aesthetic um, and conceptual frameworks that I'd invented for that kind of talk. Mm-hmm. What I love about your work, one of the things I love about your work, and this poem is a, a great example of it, is just that um, sense of you as a poet, as the writer, being like so um, perfectly immersed in the present moment culturally. Um, I was talking to, I was just talking to Erica Meitner, the poet, and I was trying to find a way of asking her the stupid question of like, what do you consider yourself a political poet? Mm. Which I know that I w- always want to ask pe- people that. And then it always feels kind of like simplistic or something. Um, but at some point she referred to herself as um, an externally oriented um, observer of, and I was like, well, that's kind of what I mean, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> By political. But um I just wonder if this book feels different. I mean, obviously, you just it, it, it feels if it feels different than your previous work in terms of the way it talks about this moment in American life in the in life in the world. Yeah, it does feel different to me. I think um, I think I'm most what I find most urgent or what I feel like I, I am drawn to most urgently speak to is the intersection between the internal and the external mm-hmm. and what the experience of that is. And I think in this book, there's a, maybe that terrain is much more um, sort of explicit uh, in terms of the fractious 
complex, often troubling interaction uh, between private life and public life um, and the intersections of things that we would consider. I mean, we know the personal is political. We've known this for a long time, but we still are, are have pretty blunt instruments for thinking through and talking through the ways in which those things intersect, overlap, define one another, and the ways in which they're happening um, in a timeless way, right? These are old questions. Um, at the same time, there are very new technologies mediating our lives and those intersections quite explicitly. Um, and so I think that there are more um, specific instances of events in the news or sort of the effects of uh, very contemporary technologies um, or the way it feels to live in this present moment as I experience and understand it. Um, those things are more at the forefront of, of these poems, I think. This poem seems so much, um, this poem resonates for me. I know this poem was published in a book that came out last year. Last year? Mm-hmm. Um, but it just kind of brought to my mind this notion between the difference, <laughs> like, you know, I was just listening to the news this morning and hearing someone talk about, I, I don't know if it was on the daily or what, but, you know, talk, hearing someone talk about interviewing someone uh, on the, at the White House about the family separation um, and the the response the response to it, and that you know the reporter was saying I was so shocked to hear just how they just you know they they didn't think it would be that big of a deal you know you would separate these children you would put them in some sort of you know refugee resettlement foster something situation and the parents would be deported and no one would care about it and. I mean, it just this this little passage in this poem about the ch- the grieving chimp. I mean, so much of um, so much of poetry in general, and so much of your poetry is seems to me to be about finding a way into our own humanity. That particular passage reminded me so much when you read it this morning, just now, like of that someone saying that earlier today. Um, just you know. Is it just simply um, a desire or an impulse to try to find the humanity in ourselves and possibly to lead others to their own? Or I'm just interested to hear you talk about like the position of the poet in that experience or that, you know, that experience or landscape. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting question, and it's such a satisf—poetry can feel so incredibly contemporary, Mm -hmm. right? And whether that's because, you know, um, a fragment of a Sappho love poem expresses something that we, you know, that feels like it perfectly traces the wound of the longing that I feel right now, thousands of years later. In that way, I think I agree with you, it sort of has a way of accessing our humanity. And um, not just on the big themes of something like love or death that you know, you sort of see as fundamentally human. But it's sort of, um, it's gratifying and alarming, that sometimes the specifics of, let's say, a particular plane going down or a particular political prisoner being murdered or a particular 
chimp who's robbed of her infant in a laboratory, the ways in which those images and our emotional engagement with them in one moment can almost like time travel to other moments. Um, and I, I guess we would all wish they wouldn't, right? Because we identify certain horrors or injustices, and we hope for progress. But in fact, we're on a lot of repeat cycles um, in the news in, ter in terms of violence, war, all kinds of things. So I guess, you know, hopefully poems are a way of really paying attention. And if you have paid good attention to something that is in some way emblematic or resonant, it will speak both to and beyond its local moment. Mm -hmm. I also think that that's part of the magic of our medium in terms of language. Um, because, you know, language itself time travels, it evolves, and it hop skips and jumps, and it brings its past associations forward. And then we're constantly sort of making new inventions out of it. So there's something I think about the way language works and the way we interact with language that allows for this sense of, um, of newness and kind of echo uh, to be present a lot. Mm -hmm. When and how did you come to poetry? Mm. My mother used to read poems aloud to me when I was very upset as a child. If I was like upset enough to be crying and throwing myself around on my bed, she would just come in sometimes. And I honestly can't remember, like, this could have happened 40 times or this could have happened twice, but it loomed large. She would just come in, sit in the room and read poems aloud to me. I think that's part of the answer in some way. Um, I also had a really exceptional high school English teacher whose own passion for not like literature feels like the wrong word. He taught us Salinger. He taught us Shakespeare. And he, he taught us a bunch of poetry. And he did. He, we did our own creative writing there. And his own sort of investment in and passion for works of literary art was so palpable. And I think I just kind of caught on or it allowed me to kind of feel my own version of that. And that's really when I started writing, which was sophomore year of high school. Um, and I, I don't think I've ever quit. We've heard that, uh, like the, the English teacher who's changed people's lives over and over and over again, you know, I think it's like these, it's like as poets, we're just like moving through the world. And then there's the one teacher, you know, because I mean, obviously, you were in a class of 20 some odd other students that do they do they all become poets, you know, it's, it's just I love thinking about the moment when I mean, maybe just because it was so monumental for me personally, when you just like look around and you like, this is this is where I'm at home. Mm -hmm. I've been going through this world for 16 years and now or 18 years or 20 years or 40 years and suddenly something in me feels like this is this is where I want to spend my time. Mm -hmm. It's such a strange job. <laughs> you know, it's such a strange thing. It really it, I mean it's it's a remarkable thing to pursue um in some ways. Uh so but it's also, I mean, the urge to make art is as 
old as yes. the human animal is, right. right? And so we happen to be literary artists, and that makes it seem, I think, both more strange and less strange because everybody uses language, mm-hmm. and you know, there's a funny kind of um, wobble there. But I think the underlying urge we we find our medium when someone, you know, uh, the great high school teacher or the poem that itself is the portal and opens the door. I think what it's doing is it's connecting us to our medium. Mm -hmm. Um, And I assume, I don't really know, but that if if you're destined to be a painter, it's Mm -hmm. that it's at some moment getting your hands on the paint um, and the brush or whatever that allows you to sort of um, make that connection. Mm -hmm. And it it also, as a poet and as a teacher, it makes you really conscious of the likelihood that there is someone out there who is waiting for you to be the person who sends them on that trajectory as well, you know. Or investigate yourself in the world in a whole new yeah. way, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's mm-hmm. what makes poetry valuable just be- beyond, you know, it as a discipline. And as, I mean, it really is, I think, you know, I, I think some people bristle and maybe rightly bristle at the idea that poetry can be therapeutic writing writing can be therapeutic but it's i think it's also i'm 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 really interested in people who write all their lives and never seek publication who have or read poetry and write poetry all their lives and yet never sort of seek publication or see themselves as as a poet in the world mm-hmm. that's it's still remarkably um valuable you know, it's as it's as valuable as as anything else. There's a contemporary philosopher um, by the name of Alva Noe, who uh, I'm really interested in his new book, which is called Strange Tools, Art and Human Nature. I think that's the subtitle. Strange Tools, I'm sure, is, is the correct um, beginning title. But insofar as I understand it so far, he, what he's saying is that... Um, Art is an essential form of human research that people have always used and need to use to understand and investigate themselves in the world. Um, So far from being sort of this decorous or frivolous or indulgent or merely expressive Mm -hmm. practice, art is a way that humans literally investigate and gather data and perform experiments on the world that they find themselves in and that this goes back to whether it's cave paintings or um, different the the human relationship to art is essential in that way Um, just as like a any other fundamental meaning making apparatus is essential so whether that's myth or science or religion or art, those are fundamental ways that humans as animals are equipped to kind of move through and right. understand the world. Right. Yeah. And That's so sometimes a biological thing. It's yeah. A, it's a it's impossible to imagine the world that we live in without art. And I love that it it works that idea of it. Um, works for the person who sort of writes privately their whole lives. Mm-hmm. They're performing an essential form of human research. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also works for the sort of best known artists who help very explicitly shape culture and thought. Mm-hmm. Um, they're performing essential research. And that's one of the things that I think is so hard to teach, or not so hard to teach, but that's just like the fundamental thing that you a teacher of poetry is trying to teach a student that you know everyone has thoughts and feelings and i know you want to show me or you want to tell me your thoughts and feelings but how 
how are you going to embody that? You know, for some poets, it's image, Mm -hmm. you know, or simile or metaphor, or, you know, a sort of more experiential um, approach to for for the reader, you know? Yeah. Um, I also think it relates to me to the idea of intimacy, because I think we sometimes think, well, the most intimate thing is to tell another person um, how we feel, or even what we think. But I think real intimacy is tell me how you think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And f- it, it, as, as someone who approaches poetry and writing in a more sort of instinctually, in a more sort of narrative way, it's like, show me that specificity in an image and trust me as your reader to do the work of assigning it the meaning that you are trying to beat me over the head with, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Often working with teenagers, um, you know, um, you can do all this work to try to get them to be very specific in their in their writing, imagistically specific in their writing, you know, so they're telling a story, like, a, you know, they're telling a story, and and their instinct is like, you know, you know, if you had to choose of all your writing that you've done, that is, to me, the strongest, it's very specific, it's very imagistic. And their instinct is to say, like, oh, no one's going to understand that, because this only happened to me, like, they're, and so, like, in some ways, that's what poetry, teaching poetry is all about, is sort of, um, teaching people that the more embodied, as you say, the work, the more intimate your reader will be and the more their own humanity will resonate reading it, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Teaching poetry is just so impossible. I mean, it really is just such a... Writing poetry is already so strange. And then to to teach it or to sort of have a way of approaching, um, you know, younger poets who are trying to find their way into it. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's always been very fraught for me. I mean, I'm not, of course, I don't teach very often <laughs> um, for that reason, perhaps. That's fine. Okay, we so now I'm gonna, I'll ask you to read the poem that you brought in. I always love to ask poem, poets to bring in and share a poem because... I love nothing more than hearing a poet choose a poem and sort of like this is this is your one chance to share or not obviously this is not your much like mm-hmm. some people love it and some people do not love it. It's hard. Yeah, I know it's I, hard. I did it's a lot hard. of debating and thinking. Um this is a poem I've loved for many years. It's by the great Polish poet Wisława Zimborska. It's called Bruegel's Two Monkeys. This is what I see in my dreams about final exams. Two monkeys, chained to the floor, sit on the windowsill. The sky behind them flutters. The sea is taking its bath. The exam is history of mankind. I stammer and hedge. One monkey stares and listens with mocking disdain. The other seems to be dreaming away. But when it's clear I don't know what to say, he prompts me with a gentle clinking of his chain. She's such a master of the image, that last the clinking of the chain. Yeah, and all the weight that it holds. Right. All the history and oppression and, um, you know, we'd been in this dreamy space. We thought that this animal had been in this dreamy space, but now this, you clink this chain. Right. You need to be reminded. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You can find This Is Our American, America, Here Is Your Son in Lisa Olstein's Late Empire, out now from Copper Canyon Press. This Is Just To Say is produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. I'm Carrie Fountain. Thanks for listening. <laughs>